0: So today, we are going to jump right back into this uh, section of the Helmet of Salvation. We have been reading and rereading these verses each week, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, so you can have context. And each element of that armor has been taught on. And obviously, there are multiple teachings on each element. So today, we jump back into this, this idea of the Helmet of Salvation. And I want to very briefly recap what we've talked about these past three weeks. We've pointed out that salvation is a foundational doctrine in the Christian faith, that it's a belief that is at the epicenter of Jesus' mission, and he leaves us this mission after his ascension. Not, not the act of saving people or redeeming people, but the idea of spreading the goodness and the grace of Jesus to our world through our word and deed. What I just mentioned about the Palmetto House and going to Roatan, these are all great examples of the perpetuation of the mission of Jesus, to bring Uh, both physical, spiritual, and emotional healing wherever it it is needed. And it is needed in a great many places in our world and in our neighborhoods. And so this is so important that Jesus himself tells us in the Gospel of John, my favorite, I, I know I'm biased here, but it is my favorite book in the whole Bible, the Gospel of John, uh, Abe and I joke our worship leader because Abe really likes the book of Romans and I love the book of John So I call him the Romans guy and he calls me the John guy And we talk about these two books a lot because they have such meaningful truths in them The book of John really summarizes every, every place you go there At some point Jesus is reminding people that he has come to earth so that they can actually find abundance in this earth A life that is abundant in this earth and life eternal in him and so we talked at length about how the helmet of salvation dealt with the past penalty and problem of sin. We really addressed that in a pretty detailed way, especially these words that have a lot of baggage in our culture. We want, we want to bring a clear biblical understanding to what these words do and do not mean. And we also talked about uh, Jesus giving us this authority last week to deal with the present perils that sin often throws our way and tempts us to. Teachings on all of this. So listen to that if you've missed it. It will certainly help undergird where we're going today. Now, understanding and applying this, this part of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, is incredibly important. And I wanted to spend a little extra time here this week and most likely next week will be the last uh, teaching we'll have in this. Because if you think about it, these two truths, which we identified last week as salvation and sanctification, they require us to find both a theological and a practical balance in our lives. And that is the truth I want to talk to you about today. Because if we imbalance these truths, salvation meaning how we, how we enter the kingdom of God through Jesus, sanctification meaning how Jesus works in our lives every day of our life to make us more like him, if we imbalance these truths, we, we wind up having an imbalanced faith our life and our faith is going to be out of sorts. And so one of two things happens. There, there are sort of two metrics you can look at to see if there is an imbalance. We will either miss out on the opportunities to grow in Jesus because we will attempt to live a life of faith without the power of presence in Jesus, okay? Meaning you, you cannot follow the king without the king. So what happens here is we, we sort of like... We seek the adornments of religion, which is real common in our culture today. In fact, a lot of the writing about the decline of Christianity in America, I would actually say is not the decline of authentic Christianity in America. It's what's happening now that the bells and the whistles are fading away. There is still a robust movement of Jesus in this country. But what's happening is, is the, the cultural notion of Christianity or, 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 or some form of a religion that is culturally inherited from our parents, that is absolutely fading away because it was never, never tethered to something strong in the first place. And so what happens here is we, we firmly, by understanding salvation, know that we, cannot, we can't embrace the Christian life without him. We don't want to pursue Jesus without Jesus. The second imbalance leads us to a form of performance-based religion. When we look at the sanctification side, where we believe, when it says out of sorts anyways, we believe that we have to earn and re-earn Christ's love to keep his love. So what happens is, for the past hundred years, there's been a lot of emphasis on salvation. This is through the mid-80s. This changed dramatically at the late 80s, and you know, we've had this rapid evolution of what the church maybe has focused on in America, the church big C. But what, what happened is, is a lot of people were really strong on this idea of salvation, which is very important. But we missed a lot of discipling opportunities to help people understand, like, what do you do with your life now that you actually have at least come to the place where you're exploring Jesus? So you, you really think that a lot of what he's saying might, might matter and might even be true. What happens after that? A lot of people missed the mark of grace in their sanctification. And they believed to a certain degree that Jesus died for their sins. But then they had to live every day following, earning his love, which is is a real problem. And I'm telling you, you can't earn his love. You have to rest in his favor. That's how we grow in Jesus. And so to put this in the language of the armor of God, this would be like picking up the battle helmet that Jesus gives us and wearing it backwards or sideways. That helmet is designed to fit our heads, protect our minds in a very particular way. And if we've ever worn the helmet crooked, which all of us have, maybe some more crooked than others, but none of us get through life with this thing perfectly fixed on our heads without an issue. We have questions about salvation. We doubt things. We question sanctification. We wonder why we want to be something greater. I'm sort of using just colloquial human wisdom now. We want to be greater than what we are today, but but we're still not. All of these things begin to release out of our mouths what is in the depths of our hearts. And so if if we're wearing the helmet sideways or backwards, what happens is we we can't actually grow in the grace of Jesus the way He desires us to. And that often leads to a lot of frustration. And what tends to happen is, is we blame the helmet. We blame the God behind the one who gave us the helmet. And what I want to say is that it isn't the helmet's fault. The objective reality of what Jesus did on the cross and what he does in our lives is objective. It doesn't change. He's been working this way forever. So it really calls into question our thoughts and understanding about what this means in our lives. And that is one of the things we really try to do as a church. We want to wrestle with these truths in deep and meaningful ways because the ability to discover this in the grace of Jesus is what shapes and reshapes our lives. And so today I want to talk about what a properly seated helmet of salvation looks like in our lives through some very practical ways. We're going to bounce back and forth on these ideas of some things that are unhealthy motivations and what actually is a healthy motivation. And this leads me to the main truth I want to share with you today. There's one idea we will unpack. God gave us the helmet of salvation to forgive us our sins, that's where we've been, and to change our lives. And this is how we're going to begin shifting in these weeks that follow. And there is a reason Christians have been singing about God's amazing grace and salvation uh, for centuries. I asked Abe earlier in the week to, to to present to you, to lead you this morning in the worship song of amazing grace, because it is truly one of the greatest songs in the legacy of, of Christian worship. And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know, we live in a, a pretty transient state and a pretty transient area. So some of you Have moved here um, from other places some of you have come from other churches maybe this is your first church if you've had any history with the church what you've noticed is that especially if you look at the pop culture notion of, of church life in America worship songs man it's it's crazy how quick some of these things come and go like we can have songs that are played on radio stations for a couple of years and they're really popular and then they're just never heard of again Uh, It's it's really amazing to me because there's been so much put forth at times how many songs don't make what I like to call the, the cut. They're not the ones we sing for hundreds of years. On the contrary, there are also some songs that have been or will be around for as long as God sees fit for his church to be on earth. And I really believe at the top of that list, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to top Amazing Grace. There are some really amazing songs in the canon of worship history in the Christian church, but this one has really stuck with us for quite some time because it beautifully talks about this alpha truth that informs all truth in the Bible when it comes to our relationship with God. And that is the truth Paul speaks of regarding the helmet of salvation. Songs like Amazing Grace were written because of truths like what we're discussing in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 13, 17, the helmet of salvation is one of the many verses in the Bible that teaches us that God's love and grace for us on the cross, please hear me when I say this, is not just supposed to be the means for a person to become a Christian and enter the kingdom. This is where I think we've dropped the ball. It isn't just the entryway into the kingdom of God. It is also supposed to be the driving motivation for every single thing we do as a Christian. So we look to the cross for the forgiveness of sin, you know, ultimate as sin, but we keep looking to the cross, what Jesus did on the cross. That's where the power and the authority, of the, the resurrected Jesus, what he did on the cross and following is what we return to to be able to live the Christian life because while Jesus forgave sin on the cross, that's a past tense event with present application. There is absolutely a need for us to have a present tense application of that past tense event in every single area of our lives. It is to be the motivation for how we continue to live for Jesus. And so the nature of the helmet and the fact that we are supposed to wear it every day of our lives reminds us of this twofold purpose, this promise God makes us through the gospel. That on one hand, God loves us so deeply, so compassionately, the cross shows us that he accepts us just as we are in Jesus. This is how we begin to, to neuter the idea of earning God's love or or merit. The Bible is replete with the idea that that is not possible and to live under that weight is a terrible place for the human heart to be. He accepts every fiber of our being, good and bad. That's an astounding statement. He looks at us and because of the cross, he is okay when we come to him in whatever condition we are in. The world might tell us we're not good enough. We might tell ourselves we're not good enough like we said last week. Whatever esteem We esteem ourselves under, good or bad. The cross, this is why theologians call it the scandal of grace. It levels the playing field. And Jesus stands with open arms before us and receives us as we are. That's one side of what the cross teaches us. On the other hand, he continues to evidence his love for us by not leaving us that way. And that is an equally important statement. The truth we're looking at today really shows us one of the ways God continues to show his love to us is by changing our lives into the image of his son, Jesus. And that's important to know. It helps us to not just see Christianity as a, as a historical faith, which it is that. There's no doubt. It's a historical faith. There's an incredible well of, of philosophy and religion and sociology and academics. You, there is no limit to what you can explore, the angles of the Christian faith. But at the epicenter of it is what Jesus has done for us. And our, our peripheral understandings of those disciplines I just mentioned can be greatly skewed if we miss the epicenter. What it means to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to wrestle with who he is and to love him. And so there are evidences in our life that have to be present that really show we understand the, the cross and are wearing the helmet of salvation. And I want to just sort of look at one today. One of the evidences that you are wearing the helmet of salvation is a growing desire to become like the one who put it on your head. And the one who put it on your head is Jesus. So this doesn't mean that we, we come to faith and, you know, we no longer struggle or deal with temptation or sin. It's not what I'm saying here at all. What I am saying is that there has to be a, a pattern, as sloppy as it can be over time, of the, there's, a, there's a desire. We know who has fitted us with the helmet of salvation, and it is our heart's desire to become more like him. And so a teaching like this, it calls us to reorient our lives around a new nature in Jesus, and to do so by relying on the most amazing motive imaginable. Motives are where we're going to spend our time this week and next. It calls us to personally live like and sacrificially live for other people in the very same way Jesus lived for us. That you can find in the book of Philippians. You can see that God's Old Testament people, Israel, they were set apart to be a people who reflected the image of God. The, te- the new testament church is the same thing that one of the great evidences of the people of god is when we begin to reflect the nature and the character of god and so this morning you know we could spend a lot of time and we'll look at a couple but we could spend a lot of time examining improper motives that we often turn to with a, they're improper but deceiving meaning they look or they feel like good motives but they're not we, we could just bury ourselves in all the negativity of how people have sought Christ-centered life changed over the years, and it's not worked out too well. For example, we'll touch on this today and one next week, but we address on occasion the faults and things like behavior modification or fear-based religion. More to come on that here in a moment. And we talk about these, these big-ticket items at times because they have deceived so many people and led them down a Christian road that is anything but Christian. And what happens is, is people think this is the way we follow Jesus. And if you enculturate yourself to an unhealthy motivation to following Jesus for some time, you can really take something that is not true and deeply believe it is true. And that's the beginning of the erosion of the, of the helmet. If we misunderstand what Jesus has done on the cross and what he desires to do in our lives every day, how he redeems us from the past problem of sin and the present perils of it, what happens is, is we, we get imbalanced. And with imbalance comes frustration. So today, I want to spend some time kicking around some motivation, some, some God-approved motivation for how we understand the helmet of salvation, how it's supposed to shape the Christian life. And to do so, we continue to look at the person of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Because remember, there is no helmet of salvation without the tool that brings salvation to the world. That Jesus' death truly satisfies the justice of God. And when we look to him, we can actually live in that, in that peace. And so look at how Paul has already communicated this with the helmet idea. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, and these are thematic writings in the New Testament, in chapters 4 and 5, I won't reference verses because I'm going to briefly summarize a couple of of chapters here in this book. But earlier in the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 and 5, I'd encourage you to read that, he gives us this lengthy list of changes, like character or life changes, that are supposed to stand as an evidence of us wearing the helmet of salvation. And he says things like we're not supposed to hold grudges against people, uh, we should do our best to be honest and not lie in life. He says we should be hard workers. This is one of the most foundational paradigms of the Christian faith: is that we are contributing positively to whatever arena of life we are in. Hard workers—that is one of the marks of a work of of, um, of of a follower of God. And you've probably heard me say this from the front of the room if you've been in this church for any amount of time: that the very first image we have of God is Him working to bring about life. I mean, that's the first snapshot we have of Him—is Him doing amazing things in the world so we're told to be hard workers responsible people we're told that generosity should define the Christian life not greed we're to be a people who encourage others rather than tearing them down we should be committed to purity in every relationship we have so we properly reflect the kind of relational fidelity Jesus has for all of us and this is especially true in our our dating and our marriage relationships I'm especially fond of the place where Paul says, and he literally says this, that Christians need to avoid brawling. This was apparently a big problem back in the day. And let's be honest, that's a pretty good tip for church people. Um, I've thought a lot about this verse in light of our our discipleship pathway. What are you guys thinking about changing our church motto? It could be something like Restoration Church, loving Jesus without brawling, right? We could embody those two things and serve him well without knocking your neighbor out for a donut in the foyer or a cup of coffee, right? These are real problems people had, like our attitude or our anger. Like brawling can certainly be physical, but man, we can have emotional brawls with people too, right? These should not be the things that define the people of God. And what I find very interesting about this section of Ephesians is that absent from this list is a behavior management command. There is no place where you find that in this list. And let me explain what I mean by this in a very practical way so that we have a clear understanding of what looking to managing behavior does in the Christian life as opposed to looking to Jesus and the cross Paul never naively says those of you who struggle with anger he never says you know deal with it by practicing anger management techniques i'm not saying all anger management techniques are wrong but i am saying like he is not saying if you don't want to be angry then be less angry that's the root of that he doesn't say if you have a problem with another person uh, put on a fake smile when you're in their presence. He doesn't say that. That's changing an external behavior that does not address the root issue of why we are angry or frustrated with another person. He doesn't say, hey, if you have a problem with being generous, force yourself to find a philanthropy. There's nothing wrong with being generous in philanthropies, but the problem there is that if you've not addressed the root of why you are not generous or why I am not generous, just Going through the motions of being generous is likely not going to be enough to change the seat of your heart, which drives the motive, the action. All of these things are what we call behavior management techniques. And the Bible warns against them in a lot of places because they really impede our ability to find lasting life change. Because at the end of the day, the analogy I use, and I use it every time I talk about this, I remember as a kid watching the Indiana Jones movies, and there's this scene... Any of you seen the Indiana Jones movies? Like, okay, most of you have, which is good. You know, there's this scene where he's trying to take a, preci- a precious piece of treasure um, off of this, like, you know, it's a trap sort of podium. And it's, I guess it's it's uh, set up by weight. So the weight of this thing is what keeps, like, this this whole place from collapsing and killing them. And he takes this, this you know, precious thing, and he swaps it out with something of, the, of equivalent weight. He basically, he he he's doing what I like to call as an as an idol swap. He's he's trying to sort of reseat something on the throne of that to stop the, the walls of this place from falling. And and it doesn't work because that's often what we do with behavior management. We say things like Hey, I'm angry, so I'm just going to try to be happy, right? That's what we do. And then eventually we might be happy for three days until our triggers are pulled, and then we're not happy again, and the walls of life come, come falling down around us. Watch that scene, and it's so apropos for this idea. We cannot just exchange weight with weight. The idea is to figure out how to stop the house from falling in the depths of our hearts. And so if you've ever relied upon a faulty motivation for serious life change, something significant, you have likely seen, and I would go so far as to say, felt its shortcomings. This will betray you at some point. And that said, those types of counsel, as as biblically problematic as they are, are incredibly popular today. And I'm not saying every aspect of these things are wrong. I am just saying, be careful of throwing your ultimate hope towards them. Because we could rightly say today we are living in what is the era of the self-help revolution. And I want to be super clear right now that I'm in no way saying that we should remove ourselves from the most serious matters we have in life, or that we should defer our responsibilities to grow in Christ's grace to others. The church is a local family. We have responsibilities to God and each other in this room. In no way am I saying that contributing to the work of God or contributing to our faith is is a problem or wrong. We clearly have a major role in this process. God has redeemed people to bring about his truth and grace in the world. So, I mean, there's no place you can go in the Bible and not see this. This is also why God gives us this armor to put on. In the very early days of this series, I said, the armor is like a gift God gives you, but eventually you've got to fit it. You've got to, you've got to say, you know what? Today is the day I'm going to start looking at the truth of Jesus. Today is the day I'm going to I'm going to ask God to seat the helmet on my head so I can understand salvation. These are not just passive things he chucks at us. These are gifts he gives us, and we have to fit them to our bodies. We have to apply them. No matter where you go, there is a a strong charge in the Bible for us to be a people who carefully examine our life and faith. And in this case, whether or not we are looking to Jesus, to the right motivations for how we grow in the grace of Jesus, or faulty things. And let me give you some examples of this like maybe an alpha example Uh, imagine if you applied this sort of self-help mantra and treated your physical body in the same way we're often told to treat our soul and emotions in the world now The the example here is sort of like we're told to, we know science teaches us like if we exercise and take care of ourselves, personal responsibility, we are very likely, nothing's guaranteed, but we are very likely to live a longer, healthier life, right? There's a great example of there being some ownership in our life there. But there are also times where we deal with physical things that are beyond our ability to control. And the idea, our soul and emotions, the idea of the, the... the pervasive paradigm of how to solve the most significant problems in our lives, it breaks down in so many other areas of life. In fact, the ideas are a bit silly. So think of it from this way. What if you had a really serious illness and rather than seeking out the appropriate care and counsel of a physician, you chose to self-help your way out of some of the most serious illnesses you face in life? And I would make a strong argument that our emotions and our soul are subject to the same properties, meaning they require the same type of care, okay? For example, let's just say you have asthma. Very serious breathing condition. And what if rather than seeking the proper treatment to deal with asthma, somebody sat you down and you told them, uh, you know, you had asthma and their response to you is this. "Oh, asthma, that's pretty serious. Like, you know, you can't, do you feel like you can't breathe when you have asthma? Well, yeah. it's It's like my lungs lock up. I can't inhale. And they said, listen, I need to tell you how to deal with this. What if they said, do you own a comfortable chair? Uh, Yes, I do. When you have an asthma attack, when you are unable to breathe, I want you to sit in that comfortable chair and then take 10 very deep breaths. Okay, 10 deep breaths. The idea of this is ridiculous for a host of reasons. Physically speaking, that's literally telling somebody the way you get over the inability to breathe is to just try and breathe, right? If you were on the receiving end of this counsel, you would likely say something like, Man, wow, I've never really thought of it like that. Like, hold on. Let me write that down in the great book of human wisdom. In order to get over the inability to breathe, I need to breathe. Boom, problem solved, right? No, problem is not solved there. You create a problem because now you are suffocating yourself. Let me give you another example. What if you had some treatable condition like, a, uh, like your blood pressure spikes or something. And rather than seeking proper medical attention, you spoke to somebody who said, hey, high blood pressure, that can be some pretty serious stuff. Like it can kill you if you leave it untended. To which you replied like, I know. So like, what do I do with that? And this person says, well, there's a lot of things that can cause higher blood pressure, tons of them. But one of the big things is sometimes we're just stressed out because of our negative thoughts, right? This is what we talked about last week, that inner voice. Sometimes we can really uh, contribute to this. So, so what I need you to do right now, if you want to deal with this is, I need you to sit down. And anytime you have a negative thought, just replace <laughs> it with a positive one. Put a positive one on that on the throne of your heart. Because we all know the best way to not be negative is to just be positive right go google how to be happy today and you're going to get 600 articles like that that are going to tell you how to how to swap a precious treasure for an idol that will fail you emotionally speaking this is literally telling somebody the way you get over negative stress is to just be positive positive. and the challenge here is a lot of people would do that if they could but they cannot muster up the energy, physical, spiritual, or emotional, or they're not at a place where they've been healed enough, physical, spiritual, or emotional, to even apply that. The thought of being positive, if you're so down on yourself, or you're dealing with a serious state of depression, isn't even an an option. And that's when that weight begins to push down on people's shoulders. The yoke of Jesus becomes very heavy, because it's not the yoke of Jesus. We might think it is, but it's not. I said last week, his yoke is light. So these things should be weights that Jesus begins to help us bear. If we are following Jesus and our burdens are heavier, there is a real chance that we might be missing out on the paradigm. Because right here, this would be like somebody saying, the best way to get over negative energy is to just find positive energy. Problem solved. And I'm telling you that that problem is not solved that problem will compound itself in any of the three disciplines we've talked about, physical, spiritual, or emotional. In all of these cases, and in the two examples I've given you, the real problem is that the person who suffers from the illness is is being told to entirely rely on themselves to cure the illness. That's where the problem is. And while these types of tools are really good for your business and search engine optimization and the platforms of social media my greatest fear is that they are leading people down a road where they're even becoming independent in how they think they can address the most significant problems in life and it is well known one of the best things we can do in any of the disciplines we've talked about if we are discouraged or depressed oftentimes what we want to do is isolate ourselves from people but that makes it worse. It's actually better to be around people who care about us. Or if we're struggling emotionally, what happens is we can, we can lock ourselves up in our own head. And when we don't have objective voices of encouragement or truth in our lives, we, we can actually go to places that we should never be or should have never gone to. But when we have people in our lives, when we are engaged in people or in people's lives and their lives and ours, things can change. We have to be around people. In our modern world, we are told over and over again, the best person to deal with you or me in every situation is is me. And I want you to hear again that there is some truth in that. I'm in no way saying we should not take seriously the ownership of our life or our faith. We have to take ownership of that. But the the greatest challenges we face in life, think about this stuff. Just try to recall a time in your life where you suffered, whatever it was. It's in those moments, the greatest challenges in life, that we seldom desire to face those alone. It's why we go to doctors when we are sick. It's why we seek loved ones when our hearts are troubled. In the Christian church, we seek counsel from our leadership or other people in our community groups. We we go to people because it's helpful, and it's also deeply Christ-centered. Because in the case of our faith in Jesus Christ, He both fits our head with the helmet of salvation and keeps it straight as we follow him. And so the ability to humbly rely, not defer the responsibility of our life out to other people, but to humbly rely on others is an important paradigm in the Christian faith. And I will say the way that you and I sort of rest on others and let them rest on us is gonna be a deeply indicative sign of our understanding of how we rest on the cross of Jesus. In other words, if we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in every arena of life, that is likely because we think that that's how the cross works. And that is not how the cross works. There is no bootstrap you can pick up to get yourself into the favor of God. And if that was even, why would we we even want that? That's the bigger question is, why would we want pressure cooker religion when we can actually have a grace-based faith? where Jesus not only redeems us of our sin, but commits to help us process them for the rest of our lives. It's sort of like one is a bar of gold, the other is just chaff, but our hearts, I think, are inclined to seek chaff. And so we have to really correct these things with truth, with that belt buckle we talked about a couple of months ago. So in our world, you'll find no shortage of these methods and motivations, and some of them can be really good and healthy, but they cannot be our ultimate hope because scripture teaches us that lasting life change has to be motivated by the heart deep commitment to live your life the way Jesus lived his for you. This is the last thing I'll say. I'm going to be brief, but please don't miss this. The, the motivation for following Jesus well is to, live his, is to live our lives the way he's lived for us. And before you logically deduce that I just gave you a new behavior to replace an old behavior, let me finish what I have to say. We are regularly told in the Bible to embody the same love, care, and compassion Jesus shows us to others. Uh, we are told that everything, everything that we are asked to both be and do, those are critical. If you, if you want to be joyful, the external expression of joy, your, your inner heart must be joyous. So we cannot disconnect what we are, a joyful people, and the ability to be joyful in circumstances. Anything we are asked to do, to be and do, always finds its attribute, the being part, and the action, what we do, in the nature of Jesus. You will not find a place where he has not been at first for us and has not done it. So, for example, we're told to be kind and compassionate to others. Because on the cross, Jesus first showed us, I mean, he showed kindness and compassion to people before the cross. But the ultimate example of this is kindness and compassion is displayed on the cross when people don't deserve it. He goes to the cross for for us, to satisfy God, and because of his love for us, we are told to to treat people a certain way because Jesus has first treated us that way. We are told to love and value others as beloved children, esteem them as as greater than ourselves at times. I always reference that verse in Philippians. Why do we do this? Why why are we especially told to to love others with the type of healthy parental care that we're trying to bring about in our families? Because in his grace, God removes the title of spiritual orphan in our lives and calls us his own. He doesn't just call us his people or his utilities. We are literally referred to as his children. Like, and the, the great father of the world and the universe loves us with this benevolent and amazing care. We are, we are removed from spiritual orphanage and, and given a home and a family in Jesus. That's why we're to love others, especially difficult people because if we're going to be honest, we can all be difficult people. I know some of you are like, I'm never difficult. I got this greater. You're difficult. Trust me. We can all be difficult. We might not believe it, but we all have this strain in us. Yet in those moments, Jesus does not remove his, his love from us. In fact, it's often his love and his guidance that gets us back to the place where we are less difficult. We're, we're told to give ourselves away to others. Why? Because even though Jesus could have remained in heaven and let us perish under the weight of our sin, he does not. He comes to earth. You know, we're Believe it or not, just a couple of months away from Christmas. It's hard to believe that. And we'll press more into this as we move into December. But here we see that the very nature of Christmas is Jesus comes to earth to give himself away for us on the cross. That's the whole gospel of John. And so in every area of the Christian life, Jesus himself shows us that the motivation for everything we do in this life must be rooted in a deep love for and understanding of what God has already done for us. And this is why this is more uh, significant, more robust, and absolutely not a behavior management what I want to say now hopefully verifies this for you. Equally as important as what Jesus tells us to become and what to do. Equally as important. and This is where a, go- a, a, a 10-step log is not going to do this for you. Equally as important, Jesus commits his life to not just telling you who to be and what to do. He also promises to help you become what he asks you to be. That is the distinction between swapping an idol out on your heart, replacing one behavior with another and really understanding the nature of the cross. So when Jesus says, be generous because I'm generous, he not only tells you that, but he commits to help you become generous. In, 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 from the throne of heaven, he will spend his days reshaping the clay of your heart to help you become more generous. If you are frustrated or angry or selfish or whatever, we all have the, our own things that we struggle with. You just fill in that blank. I'll do it myself. Jesus not only says, we should not be those things. He says, I also commit to you to help you not be those things. I commit to you, not just to tell you what to do, not just to tell you who to become, but I am going to spend my days helping you become something new in me. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And that is better than any self-help tool we can be provided today. And so this morning, ask God to show you how the helmet of salvation sits upon your head. Because if we're going to be honest with where we are with the Lord, um, it's important that we do our best to see how it is seated on our heads. If, If there's something in your heart right now that's got you tied up or you're stressed about, these are the things, not only does God already know about them, but he has already committed to help work these things out in your life. Ask if there's somebody in this room in your community group maybe you're not even in a community group and a lot of people will listen to this sermon that are not in this room online this week you have to have other people in your life you have to be able to look to somebody that you can trust to be an encourager to you if you're in a season of need especially and that's okay we all have those seasons but you also have to be the type of person where where when the physical and the spiritual and the emotional is in a time of plenty that you now pay that forward that you encourage others, that, that you look for the downtrodden, you look for the marginalized, you look for the hurting, and you impute into them, you impart into them the beautiful grace that somebody once invested in to you. We have to be a people who can rely on others, and we have to be people who, that are reliable for others. It's a two-way street when it comes to, to this idea. And I really would encourage you to believe this. This is a big truth. It's deep. I mean, we could probably spend eight more weeks on salvation. I I literally could probably teach on this through infinity, but we will not. But what I want to ask you to think about as we move forward is, is to try to approach this with a childlike faith, to believe simply that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that might sound abrasive at first, but it is such an amazing promise and grace from God. He cares for you in the same way we care for our children, In the seasons of life where they cannot care for themselves, that's done out of great love, care, and sacrifice. Sure, you know, when we had infants, if they could talk, maybe they would have said, well, I don't need your help. I can square this away on my own. The truth is they couldn't. They were dependent on us. And that is the idea behind this. This is why the idea of of children is so prevalent in the description of the relationship we have with Christ. For today, think about what it means to just to trust him. And if you have trouble trusting him, let him know that so that he can help you to understand more deeply not only why he is worthy to be trusted, but so that he can bring about that rhythm in your heart. Because God absolutely loves us as we are, but he promises us in his grace that he's never going to leave us that way. That's the great evidence of the continued love of God in your life. So let that be your hope. Whatever you came in here with today, let that be your hope this day and in every day that follows. Pray with me. God, we, uh, we come to you now and we thank you for your son, we thank you for the cross, which we do know um, is a historical event. We look to it and we study it in the Scripture and the effects it had on life and the world. We certainly know that the cross is something you did, but uh, that you went to. But I pray, Lord, that the, those past tense verbs would never cause our hearts to neuter the reality of the fact that that sacrifice, that helmet of salvation you give us, has meaning and purpose in every single second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year of our life. It is always something that we should be thinking about. And so I pray this morning, Lord, wherever we are with you, that we would take some time to ask you to clarify the cross, to help us understand the helmet of salvation, how it affects our lives, and how it truly is a blessing and a relief to be able to wear it. I pray, Lord, that in the places we have come in here, discouraged today that we would recognize, as we said last week, that in our weakness, you are made strong. You view our weakness very differently than we do. So help us to be humble with that and not ashamed, but to really let you speak into our hearts. Help us to be strong in Jesus in the places where we are weak. And I pray we would love you more deeply because of that. And I do pray, Lord, we have so many amazing people at our church that where those who right now are strong, that they would recognize how valuable a blessing that is from God and to not let that strength go on to not let it be squandered, to use those things, to invest in the lives of men and women, to help them to experience uh, grace in the places where they are without it. God, I pray, Lord, we would truly seek your will in our lives and in the blessing of others as we begin to close our time here this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.